G'day. We hope you're enjoying our podcast. Producing a podcast is costly, both time and money. If you'd like to show your support and offer a one-off payment, even the price of a coffee or a beer, that'd be greatly appreciated and would go a long way to support us. If you'd like to leave a donation, head to the show notes of this episode and click on the ACAST supporter link. Be sure to leave your message of support too. Thanks again. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The thoughts and opinions shared in this podcast are just that. It's up to the listener to decide what is true and what is not true. This podcast contains coarse language, references to violence, sexual abuse and murder, and may not be suitable for everyone. Discretion is advised. Hi, my name's Graeme Stafford. I have not been involved in the production of this podcast, but have been invited to tell my side of the story. In 1991, I was sentenced to life in prison for the murder of Leanne Holland, a murder I did not commit. This is not my story. This is the story of the murder of Leanne Holland and a search for the truth, a search that continues to this day. Previously, on Who Killed Leanne Holland? They tried to get all this evidence to fit the scenario that they wanted to paint about it being Graham Stafford, but there were so many concerns with that evidence. The tire impressions at the scene of the crime that didn't quite match Graham's car. I think the speed with which they decided Graham was a suspect, he had limited opportunity, no motive, and the savageness of the crime, I thought, made Graham, who had no history of violence, a very unlikely suspect. It's not easy to commit this type of horrendous act. It takes a certain type of person. The police found a lighter inside the body, which has obviously been discarded by the, uh, the killer. The person who's got something to be worried about here is Graham Stafford. He's the one that we're talking about his name, we're painting this picture. like. I was just gobsmacked by the um, discovery of the big fat maggot in Graham's boot uh, before Leanne's body was discovered in the bush. Being an investigative journalist at the time, you know, it really sort of tickled my fancy and I started delving deeper into it and uh, it didn't take long before it became obvious that there were a lot of discrepancies in the police case against him. A 610 Media Production. This is Who Killed Leanne Holland. Chapter 10. A Profiler's Dream. In the next chapter, we will start introducing you to the alternate suspects. Those persons we believe are more likely to have murdered Leanne Holland than Graham Stafford. And they are pretty scary people and each is different in their unique and own way. Did they murder Leanne by themselves or in the company with others? We don't know. But we will show you why we believe they are more likely to be the killer by their conduct, character and behaviour. 
To help you understand Graham Stafford and these three suspects, we want to talk about the type of person who murdered Leanne Holland. To profile them, get an idea of who we are looking at, for and at. We want to compare the profile of the killer against the profile of Graham Stafford and against the profile of the three alternate suspects you will meet. The term serial killer has different definitions. By one source, two of these suspects are serial killers. The other a convicted pedophile with a long history of feeding his perversions from young girls. That, of course, does not make him a killer. Or did he escalate to murder? Okay, g'day, Graham. Uh, welcome to Chapter 10 of Who Killed Leanne Holland, A Profiler's Dream. How are you doing this fortnight, mate? Very well, thanks, Jamie. And you? Congratulations, by the way, Jamie, on the birth of your child. Yeah, mate, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's exciting times. And, um, yeah, hence why you'll be hearing more of Graham's voice on the podcast because he's picking up some of my slack. Only too happy to, mate. So we left you last episode saying that we had an update on the skirt that Leanne Holland was found in and on the old white ambulance that was seen at the site of where Leanne's body was found. Graham, what have you got for us, mate? Okay, well, we're still working on that, but yes, um, we have some information on the skirt that uh, Leanne was found in. It's believed to belong to one of the daughters of pedophile Pete, and we're following that up. Not sure where it'll take us, but uh, there we have it. As for the old white ambulance, we have a person who says that there was an old white ambulance that lived in, in Bailey Street, Goodna, across the road from where Leanne Holland lived. And in fact, the person who told us that said that they had seen Leanne in that ambulance and that they'd actually dragged Leanne out of the ambulance and sent her home. Um, but we're waiting to talk to that witness directly and uh, just confirm exactly what they what they saw and what they didn't see. And bearing in mind, it's a long time ago and I'm sure their memory's a bit faded. Yeah, right. And also, just to refresh everyone's memory, that old white ambulance was also seen at the body disposal site. Uh, a witness saw that along with what they said was Graham Stafford's car. Is that correct? That's right. Um, the witness who saw a car out at the body disposal site on the Wednesday morning, which they later uh, said was Graham Stafford's car, and then later again said it wasn't Graham Stafford's car, Yep. also saw a an old white ambulance follow that car into the bush. And it's curious because the Queensland police accepted her evidence that the car that she saw going into the bush was Graham Stafford's car, but ignored the evidence about the old white ambulance. Like, you can't have it both ways. It's either one or the other. Mm. So we'll keep you informed on that white ambulance as soon as we know more. And an update on former Police Commissioner Ian Stewart as well. You may recall we were attempting to speak with Ian Stewart and invite him onto the podcast to answer some questions about why he refused to release the police review. Queensland Police refused to forward our email onto him, but I was able to get a message to him inviting him onto the podcast to discuss his refusal to release the police review. He hasn't responded to that message, so I can take that as a no. And you used to work with Ian Stewart as a fellow officer, didn't you? That's right. We were detective senior constables together in Townsville. Back in the day, we worked together for 
I can't remember exactly, two to three years, I think. All right, so if you're listening, Mr. Stewart, please get in touch. Yes, by all means. Happy to have you on, Ian. In this uh, chapter, we're going to discuss profiling, uh, which we need to define. Uh, so we're all on the same page. And we need to summarize it all so it fits into one chapter. Profiling is not a perfect science. It is a tool, however, that can assist police with identifying the type of person responsible for the crime they are investigating. Hopefully we can demystify it a bit, hopefully obtain some understanding of it, and from my own perspective, it can be a bit confusing and non-specific. There would be very few armchair detectives who have not heard of criminal profiling, also known as offender profiling. There are entire TV shows dedicated to it. There are podcasts dedicated to profiling and examples of how profiling has helped solve serious crimes. For every supporter of profiling, there is a critic of it too. Too general, too vague, unscientific, could be anyone. He may be employed or unemployed. He may be married or single. It could be a male or a female, etc., etc. But there are many examples of where profiling has helped solve murders, particularly the original Mind Hunters that made it into television series. Douglas and Wrestler, their profiles helped identify the arrest of the Atlanta child killer, and that team was responsible for catching the Unabomber. Jim Clemente is another great profiler, helped catch the Washington DC sniper. The basic premise in profiling is that behavior reflects personality. What exactly does that mean? Social media, particularly Facebook, is peppered with behavioral quotes such as, your beliefs don't make you a better person, behavior does, or behavior is the mirror in which everyone shows their image, or Behavior is what a man does, not what he thinks, feels, or believes. The basic definition of behavior is the way in which one acts or conducts oneself, especially towards others. Which leads us to the question, what is personality? Everyone has heard it, knows of it, but how many actually understand it? Terms such as he has a weird personality, she has a bubbly personality, he has a dark personality, and so on, comes to mind. The definition of personality is the combination of characteristics or qualities that form an individual's distinctive character. And as we have said, behavior is the way in which one acts or conducts oneself, especially towards others. So we are looking at a person's character and behavior, past and present. Remember Jack the Ripper murders in London in the 1880s, 140 years ago now. The first offender profile was assembled by detectives of the Metropolitan Police on the personality of Jack the Ripper in the 1880s. A profile of Adolf Hitler was prepared and included the scenario of his reaction to losing the war. The profiler concluded he would probably commit suicide. There are recorded uses of profiling throughout the 20th century, but it wasn't until the death of FBI's J. Edgar Hoover in 1972 that profiling started to become mainstream. At the FBI, agents began an informal series of ad hoc interviews with 36 convicts starting in early 1978, which led to the formation of the National Center for the Analysis of Violent Crime. From that, five steps have been developed when profiling. 1. Analyzing the criminal act and comparing it to similar crimes in the past. 2. An in-depth analysis of the actual crime scene. 3. Considering the victim's backgrounds and activities for possible motives and connections. 4. Considering other possible motives. 5. Developing a description of the possible offender that can be compared with previous cases. So what do we hope to achieve from profiling? Obviously, a description of the killer, his personality, his behaviour, 
something we can hang our hat on. Does Graham Stafford's personality and behavior fit the profile of the killer? And what about the three alternate suspects? Do any of their personalities and behavior fit the profile of the killer? So we're looking at a person's character and behavior, past and present. That's right, Jamie. We're looking at a person's character and behavior, past and present. That's if there's one thing I've, I've got from profiling, it's their character. We're looking at their character and their behavior, and the behavior reflects personality. A profiler looks at a person's character and their behavior, past and present. And I think that is so important in this case. Absolutely. And we're going to compare the profiles of Graham Stafford and the three suspects that we have identified against the profile worked up by the criminologist Anne McMahon. So we're going to be looking at Graham Stafford's character and his behaviour. And we'll also be looking at the character and behaviour of the three suspects that you'll hear in the next two chapters. Police forces in Australia do engage profilers. Uh, The West Australian Police, for instance, use two profilers to assist in identifying the Claremont serial killer. For those unfamiliar with this case, three women were murdered in the Perth suburb of Claremont in the 1996-1997 era. The offender was not arrested until 2016 and his trial is actually currently before the the Perth Supreme Court and there is quite a good podcast out uh, on the Claremont serial killer. So what did the profilers have to say about the Claremont serial killer? Victorian police criminal profiler Claude Minasini said he'd more than likely have a job and drive a recent model car and was probably comfortable mixing in the lively after-dark Claremont social scene. He would not frighten those he came into contact with. He was probably very bright, very much in control of himself, has all the outward appearances of a very stable person. Pleasant, normal, and I dare say that when this guy is arrested, I guarantee that people are going to be absolutely astounded. They're going to say, I work with this guy. He's my next-door neighbour. Surely it can't be him. So we've had criminologists profile Leanne's killer. Why did we do that? To try and paint a picture of Leanne's killer. But remember, this is a double-edged sword. Going down that path may lead us directly back to Graham Stafford. And as we have said many times, we are willing to follow the evidence, regardless of where it takes us. True. Yeah, true. Around 1996, Paul Wilson suggested that we obtain the services of a profiler Profiling was virtually unheard of in Australia at that time. It was in its infancy, literally. Through Paul's contacts, he engaged Brent Turvey from the USA to profile the killer for us. Brent Turvey is a legend in the criminal profiling world. He has published at least 11 books dealing with criminology, profiling and other aspects of the science. There would not be a student of criminology alive who has not studied Brent Turvey. Brent Turvey's full report can be found on the website whokilledleanneholland.com. And we've been very fortunate to be able to speak with two Queensland-based criminologists regarding this case. And we thank them both very much for their time. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr Terry Goldsworthy, who has an impressive CV. Terry had over 28 years service with the Queensland Police Service and retired as a detective inspector. He has a Bachelor of Commerce, a Bachelor of Laws, an advanced diploma in investigative practice and a diploma of policing. 
He was admitted to the bar in Queensland and the federal courts in 1999 as a barrister and he holds a PhD in criminology. He is published with his first book being Valhalla's Warriors, which examines genocidal actions of the SS in Russia during World War II. Very keen to talk with Terry because he has been on both sides of the fence, so to speak, and we value his opinions greatly. Well, thanks for your time, Terry. You wear two hats, that of a criminologist and of a former senior member of the Queensland Police. As a criminologist, are there certain character, behavioural or personality traits you would expect to find in someone who committed a crime as violent as this? Yeah, look, I mean, if you've got uh, someone who's committing a crime um, in the motivation of sexual activity, uh, you know, I guess you would be looking at two different types. One is someone who uh, is what we would term a preferential offender, so they're looking for a person at that age to engage in that kind of behaviour. Uh, alternatively, it could be someone who's a situational, so they've just come across the victim by chance and they've taken uh, that opportunity to commit the offence. So that'd be the two broad categories that you'd probably be looking at. Can you give us an idea of perhaps a history or background on the kind of person who would commit this type of crime? Yeah, look, I mean, you'd need to... uh I'm not a fan of uh, criminal profiling per se, so I think it's quite difficult to to pinpoint individual characteristics uh, in terms of who may have committed the crime, etc. What I think is useful, and this comes from uh, a practice called behavioural uh, evidence analysis, which is a form of profiling, is looking at the physical evidence at the scene and seeing that what that tells you from a deductive uh, viewpoint. So, you know, having evidence to draw your conclusions rather than, you know, trying to rely on some inductive, you know, extrapolation where you may say that, you know, most people who kill children are aged 35 to 40 and they're a white male. Uh, I think you need to look at the individual characteristics of the crime to see what that tells you. Right. Just on that, in child um, homicides, can you say who are the most common perpetrators? Uh, more than I can tell you, <laughs> Graham, I, okay. I don't have the answer to that one. Yep. I'll tip my fingers. Okay. Would you expect someone who commits a violent murder such as this to have a history of violence of any sort? Look, I mean, usually you see some kind of uh, ramping up. That's not to say that people don't commit murders without any uh, instances of violence prior to that. It's more unusual. Uh, but certainly if you're looking at... Um, you know, the, the killing of someone, it's usually, I guess, uh, to go back to your previous question about who might do it, you know, we have what we call a hierarchy of suspicion and that being, you know, you look closest to the victim first and then move outwards once you, uh, ex- you know, exclude those uh, suspects, etc. Uh, and that's because we know from the data that uh, stranger homicides are quite uh, unusual, quite unique and don't occur that often. Most of them, it's... Uh, you know, they take place in terms of domestic or acquaintance-type uh, homicides. So um, while it may not be uh, you know, always the case that there's a history of violence, um, you know, usually you'd expect there may have been some lower-level offending, some sexual behaviours, and then uh, you'd move into this type of offending. If you look, for example, the Daniel Morecambe case, uh, the fellow involved in that had a history of very violent offending against children. And then um, he was a preferential type offender, as I talked about, yet his uh, murder of uh, Morecambe was, in fact, situational. He just happened to come across him at the right time and there was a lack of guardianship and he took advantage of that. So uh, I guess that's a good example of someone who's graduating up in terms of violence. If you're Australian, there's no doubt you've heard of Daniel Morecambe. 
But for our international listeners, Daniel Morgan was a 13-year-old boy who was abducted and killed in 2003. This case rocked the Sunshine Coast. Daniel was waiting for the bus on a busy road. Brett Cowan picked him up in his own car and subsequently killed him. Some eight years later, Brett Cowan was arrested and charged and sentenced to life in prison. Daniel Morecambe's case has forever changed the way we look at child safety. On the day Daniel disappeared, he was wearing a red t-shirt. Since then, there is an annual day for Daniel, where everyone is encouraged to wear red to honour Daniel's memory. Terry, do you put any weight on motive when looking at a crime, both as a criminologist and as an investigator? Yeah, I think motive is very important. Um, the lawyers will tell you you don't need motive to prove uh, to prove murder, and technically they are correct. But certainly I think motive goes towards uh, assisting with looking at what uh, someone's intention was. And, you know, if you look at the, the process of an investigation, it's really about gathering information. So there's three main phases in that, and the first one is... Uh, you acquire and identify information, you're hunting for suspects. Uh, when you get that information, investigators need to interpret it, understand it, and that is where you're trying to understand the motive of the offender. Why did they do the offence? Um, and that flows on to the last phase of the information uh, process where, you know, you order and present the, the information as evidence. So you fit it into a legal framework because that enables the jury to understand the story of the crime, and that's half the battle, uh, getting the jury to understand why something's occurred. So while Whilst technically you don't need motive to show intent, it does make understanding why the offence was committed much easier and will allow other components of the offence to be understood by juries. I've always been of the opinion that you know motive uh, is um, very important. We we all we all do something for some reason. In the um, in the trial of Graham Stafford, the the Crown prosecutor offered no motive. Uh, later on the trial he did, but initially he said. I'm not offering a motive and I don't have to offer a motive and and you just clarified that yourself, but I'm just of the opinion that motive is very important. Why do we do things, you know? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, everyone ideates, whether you're in a psychosis or whether you you plan something long-term, it may only be an ideation of motive for a split second uh, and then you act on it, but nonetheless you will ideate before you'll act. Uh, there's always a reason for someone doing it. Whether the reason is rational to us or not is another matter. Um, but that reason or motive is always there. Uh, you know, look, I think um, motive is also useful not only in understanding the crime, but motive will also allow you to reduce suspect pools, which, again, is, is very useful when you're talking about limited resources and you're moving through trying to investigate uh, who may have committed the crime. If, if you, you know, establish very early that, uh, you know, the crime is obviously for revenge or something, then that limits who you could probably look at initially. And it goes back again to that hierarchy of suspicion. The motive will determine the hierarchy of suspicion. The bashing of Leanne was, was very violent, extremely violent. There were at least 10 blows delivered to her head with a hammer or similar heavy object. If this murder occurred in the bathroom, as QPS claim, what evidence would you expect to find there? Yeah, look, I mean, if you've got a substantial head wounds, uh, and I would expect there would be some amount of heavy bleeding, 
Um, I guess, you know, I have had crime scenes where someone's been killed with one punch and there was absolutely no uh, evidence uh, for us to obtain. But I guess if you're talking, you know, there's a substantial physical interaction, there's a number of blows, it's quite likely those blows would have uh, resulted in some traumatic wounds with blood uh, flow accompanying them. I would expect that there, you know, there would be some uh, clear indicators there. I mean, you can clean up a crime scene, but, you know, you won't be able to totally uh, sanitise the crime scene. One of the things that concerned me was that there was absolutely no blood in any of the S-bends in the uh, plumbing at that house. Does that surprise you? Yeah, look, probably outside my field of expertise, um, you know, I guess... uh, yeah, he's kind of suggesting that the blood would have settled there or...? Well, I'm suggesting that if blood was flushed down through the bathtub, through the sinks, you know, emptying out blood in a bucket and whatever, it there would be blood found or remnants of blood in the S-bends. Yeah, probably best answered by uh, someone like Leo Freeney or a forensic scientist to, to give you the, I guess, the scientific... Uh, evaluation of how long the blood would last in a fast-flowing, you know, system like that, whether it would take or whether it would just flow through and be diluted such that you couldn't find it. But uh, it'd be interesting. I mean, I hadn't thought of that, but that's an interesting uh, aspect to look at. Just on that, Leo Freeney basically concluded, in his opinion, um, the murder never occurred in the bathroom, the body was never in the boot of uh, Graham Stafford's car. How much weight can we put on his opinion? I guess in uh, what access he had in terms of evidence, physical evidence to evaluate. Um, now, obviously, the best time to get your evidence uh, evaluated is at the scene at the time, um, the first 24 hours being very important. That doesn't mean necessarily that you can't do what we call cold case reviews later, um, especially if the evidence has been properly uh, obtained and, uh, you know, gone through the process of analysis and then been retained in uh, a good uh, a good form for future analysis. So, I mean, uh, I think the, the opinion of someone uh, with those credentials would be quite valuable. Uh, and like any forensic scientist, you know, he'd need to go through the stages of how he reached his conclusions, etc., and they could be tested if anyone had any issues with it. But I think uh, it'd be quite powerful evidence. As far as I'm aware, he never went to the crime scene. He just reviewed the evidence. But this this is a scientist with um, who, who was involved in over 4,000 cases and um, I think he's highly, he was highly regarded uh, within police circles. Yeah, look, I mean, uh, I can't recall ever having a forensic scientist come to any murder scene I had, so he's not unusual in the fact that he didn't go to the scene. Um, and, you know, it comes into those stages of, uh, you know, what we call the attrition model where, you know, you have people uh, attend the crime scene, that's usually the police. Uh, you then have the transportation of the evidence, analysis of the evidence, uh, and on it goes. I mean, uh, as I said, I, I don't recall ever having a uh, civilian forensic scientist turn up to a crime scene to do an evaluation. Uh, it was always done by the police and then the forensic scientist you know, made their conclusions from the evidence given them to the right police. You're aware that the Queensland Police are refusing to release the police review. Do you believe they have valid grounds for re- refusing to release it, Terry? No, I don't think they've got any valid grounds whatsoever. I mean, that report has uh, been leaked to, uh, to a tele- television program that aired nationally in Australia. 
um, you know, it would have only been leaked by someone I suspect who was close to the investigation. Uh, the fact that it's now out in the public realm, I mean, Channel 7 have got copies of it. They've uh, alluded to much of the content in their program. I don't see any valid reason why the QPS wouldn't make that uh, investigation available in terms of accountability and transparency. Um, it just seems uh, almost bloody-minded to me that they're determined to try and resist it. I can't see any basis where they would want uh, to retain that uh, that review of the investigation, especially given the fact that they've indicated that uh, Stafford remains the only suspect they're considering. So they've clearly indicated they won't take any further action there. Uh, he's not going to go back to trial after having his conviction quashed. Uh, so, you know, why are they... Uh, opposing uh, anyone having a review of their review. Yes, that's a question we'd all like answered. Uh, Terry, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Wayne. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dr Goldsworthy made some interesting and valid comments regarding the police review, Graham. I couldn't agree more, Jamie. Queensland police do not have any valid grounds for not releasing the report, but I'm suggesting it goes further than sheer bloody-mindedness. The investigation was completed in 2012, and Queensland police have repeatedly refused to release the report since that time. The most recent application to block the release was in March 2020, just a few months ago. As Dr Goldsworthy said, the report must have been released by someone close to the investigation. With Atkinson and Stewart now gone, the list of persons close to the investigation narrows considerably. It really makes you wonder what is in that report, or more likely not in the report, to continue to block its release. I'd go so far as to say there is someone in the Queensland Police in a very high position, who wants to block the release of the report until the matter becomes stale and everyone loses interest. It is interesting to note that by 2016, the media interest in the investigation and the resulting report was mounting and there were regular articles pertaining to it. It was a clever move to leak the report to a friendly journalist. The journalist was not in a position to question any part of the report, even if they wanted to, as it had been illegally leaked. The finding against Graham Stafford satisfied the majority of journalists, even though they were not able to put the report under the magnifying glass. Just another reason to hold a coroner's inquest. The identity of that officer would then become known, and perhaps that's the reason why the Queensland Police are opposing a coronal inquest so vigorously. In December 2019, we were contacted by Andy McMahon, a Queensland-based criminologist who has a Bachelor of Criminology in Criminal Justice and a Certificate Three in Investigative Services. She offered to create a profile of the killer of Leanne Holland for us, which we naturally and gratefully accepted. 
she spent many, many weeks on the task. Her complete profile, consisting of nine pages, can also be found on our website, whokilledleanholland.com. And thanks for your time today. Uh, my pleasure, Graham. As a criminologist, are there certain character, behavioural or personality traits you would expect to find in someone who committed a crime as violent as this one? Yes, Graham, there are, yep. Uh, we would normally expect to see um, at least some history of previous offences and in particular violent offences. Um, he, and I say he, his research shows that uh, perpetrators of this type of crime, they are usually men. Um, they may also have had a troubled upbringing. Um, Graham, it's just not normal to go from zero to 100 in these types of crimes. I mean, generally, perpetrators may begin um, their deviancy with less violent crimes. Uh, for example, uh, Peep and Tom, or they may steal panties off the abortion line. So this feeds their fantasies, and they may get sexual gratification from these actions, but uh, eventually these deeds are not enough for them to fulfill their fantasies, and their actions increase in violence until eventually the on, only the final act of murder is enough to do this. Um, some of your comments there, Anne, actually lead into or answer the next question which I have, but I'll ask it and I'm sure there'll be other things you can tell us about it. Can you give us some history or background of the kind of people who do commit these types of crimes? Yeah, uh, well, like I just said, Graham, troubled upbringing, um, a history of violent offences. Actually, interestingly, a report that was published by the American Bureau of Justice in 1966, it's uh, called child victimizers, violent offenders and their victims, uh, it revealed significant differences between a child victimizer and an adult victimizer in regards to their criminal history and their social background. So some of the differences, Graham, showed that um, more than half of the inmates who had victimized children and were convicted of either negligent manslaughter, forcible sodomy, statutory rape, uh, or Ludox's as children and other sexual assaults reported that their victims were aged 12 or under, which is interesting. About 6 in 10 offenders who victimised children had previously served sentences um, from probation to incarceration. Uh, one in four had a prior history of violence and they were more likely to have suffered sexual abuse as a child themselves. Well, that actually answers my next question, which uh, related to a history of violence. You mentioned going from zero to 100. Just yeah. Can you just um, expand on that so that everyone understands exactly what you're talking about? Well, in, in Graham Stafford's case, he's never had any prior convictions at all, not even a parking ticket from what I believe. So they're saying that this man has gone from zero, no no prior offences to 100, where he's brutally uh, murdered this young girl. And from what we know, it doesn't happen like that. Normally, there are previous violent behaviour. But saying that, that's a generalisation and not everyone fits into the statistics. Sure. Yep. Understand. You also touched on child homicides in some of your previous answers there, but can you give us an idea who the most common perpetrators would be of child homicides? Sure. Um, so let's assume here that a killer has only killed a child, namely Leon. And Graham, can I just take a minute here just to say that for you and I, Leon, that's our main reason for being involved in this investigation and our mutual need 
to see justice done. I mean, we are both following the facts, whatever whatever that leads. I, 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 I agree. I agree completely. Um, you know, people say that oh, this is all about Graham Stafford, but it's not. You know, uh, yeah. I didn't. I didn't know Graham Stafford until I got involved in this case, which was after his conviction. This is about Leanne Holland. I couldn't agree more with you, Anne. Yeah, and I've never met Graham Stafford. Sure. Um, yeah, so child homicides, uh, who are the most common perpetrator as well? Again, another study in 2017 out of um, Northwestern University School of Medicine. The researchers there found that individuals who only killed children, or in other words, they had never killed adults, they uh, had poor communication skills, poor, poor problem-solving abilities, and are often mentally ill. And they also tend to kill impulsively using manual methods. And their example was beating or drowning. It will be interesting when your listeners hear about the list of the other suspects that you've compiled on mm. that. Well, exactly, beating and drowning. There was a second murder 23 days later, as you know, and I'm not a believer in coincidence. I believe there's, there's a connection between the two. As you know, Julianne Lowe was drowned in Goodna, One kilometre from um, Leanne Holland's house, some 23 days after Leanne's murder. As a criminologist, do you sort of think there could be a connection here based on geography, timing, age of the victims, etc.? Well, as a criminologist, when two murders occur weeks apart in the same geographical location and the victims are of similar age, we must consider a connection. I mean, like you, Graham. I'm not one for coincidences, uh, but I know from what you told me that the police, they dismissed this as uh, not being connected to Leon's murder as the MO or the modus operandi were completely different in the two cases. In Leon's case, she was bludgeoned to death and in Julian's case, she was drowned. Now, the definition of modus operandi or mode of operation, according to Hazelwood and Warren, is... And I quote, MO encompasses all behaviours initiated by the offender to procure a victim and complete the criminal acts without being identified or apprehended. The MO can be quite simple or very complex with the various degrees of sophistication reflecting the experience, motivation and intelligence of the offender. Close quote. So simply put, the MO is all the actions required by the criminal to commit the crime and escape undetected. So no more and no less than what that takes. So that can include things like, oh, he wore a mask, or uh, he carried a knife, or he abducted the victim, or he killed the victim and he ran off on foot undetected. So that's the MO. But there's another behaviour that may be seen at um, two or more crimes by the same perpetrator, and this behaviour is called his signature. And according to Brett Turvey, and again I quote, these are acts committed by an offender that are not necessary to commit the crime, but that suggest the psychological or emotional needs of that offender, close quote. So an example of a signature might be uh, a mutilation of the body, carving the body, the position of the body, or uh, post-mortem activity even. So um, saying that, we know from research that an offender's MO, it does change, Graham, from crime to crime. And the reasons for the change in an MO, it can be 
developmental or it can be situational. So they learn from their experiences and they may become more proficient. So this is developmental. And a situational change, for example, maybe a victim responds differently. So uh, it doesn't go the same way as it did in the first murder. So they need to adopt the type of murder that they commit. So I can't see how the QPS dismissed the second murder as being linked to Leon's simply because there were different MOs. Doesn't make sense. Can can we just go back to that previous comment you made regarding sure. the Northwestern University uh, study? And yeah. um, you said there that uh, individuals who solely kill children uh. have poor communication skills, poor problem-solving abilities, and are often mentally ill. Yeah. And, they, and I was intrigued when you said they also tend to kill impulsively using manual methods, for example, beating yeah. or drowning. Yeah. How bizarre. These two cases, one was a beating and one was a drowning. Both oh, I know. In, both in Goodna, <laughs> both in a yeah. in the same time frame, uh, both 12-year-old girls. That That is just... Is that coincidence, Graham? Do you believe in coincidence? And I'm sorry, I do not believe in coincidence. No, I don't either. I don't uh, either. That That is really, really interesting uh, work, Anne. I thought that when I read it. I had mm. the hairs on the back of my neck stood up when I read that. When yeah. I read that. And um, how much weight do you place on motive when looking for at a crime? How much weight do I place on motive? Uh, well, well, what is motive, first of all? Um, according to the Cambridge English Dictionary, it's a reason for doing something. So it's uh, the, like the emotional psychological and material needs that impel and are satisfied by behaviour. So in other words, um, why does someone do what they do, basically? What's the reasoning behind it? And is it important to have a motive? Well, according to Hazelwood and Napier, it is, because they say it can reduce the suspect pool to people with the same motive. It's important for case linkage, so... More than one case is linked to the same suspect, so there are similar motives. It can contribute to circumstantial evidence about an offender's identity when paired with means and opportunity. And it can also provide information about offenders' characteristics that are associated with that motivation. So, yeah, it's important. Do you think it's unusual that um, an offender, in this case I'm referring to Graham Stafford, at his trial the prosecutor did not offer a motive uh, for for this crime. I've always been of the opinion, Anne, that, you know, everyone has a motive for doing something. Uh, You you have a motive for getting up in the morning is to go to work or or have breakfast. So I I sort of, uh, like, I'm I'm not educated as a criminologist, so I'm not one to speak, but I just feel that a motive is core to this whole issue. I agree. And you're saying that uh, the prosecutor offered no motive for Graham. Well, they don't need to. Prosecution doesn't need to offer a motive. Oh, I agree, but, totally. But most juries, they want one because they're, they they're like, well, how could someone do this? They can't understand it. So then juries want a motive. Mm, they want to understand what drove the offender to commit the crime. Exactly. And there's so many different motives for different crimes. You know, you've got profit. For example, as a motive in burglary, in a sadistic murder, the motive there is for fooling a fantasy. You've got 
you know, uh, another motive is anger retaliatory, which means, you know, someone's lied to you and you you want to retaliate. So that's just some motives. That I just can't see Graham having any of those motives for this crime, Graham. I can't. Yeah. What would the motive be? I don't uh, understand. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, later on in the trial, they said it was psychosexual or something like that. Um, but certainly at the start of the trial, they didn't offer a motive and didn't make any apology for that. And you prepared a profile of the offender, didn't you, for, this, for the I killing did. of Leanne Holland. Can you tell us what you found? Firstly, can I just qualify this by saying that a profile does not in any way, shape or form state that this is definitively the person that police should be looking for. Sure. Um, and moreover, the, the style of profiling that I've used is inductive uh, and it assumes that if certain crimes committed by different people are similar, then the offenders must also share some type of common personality traits. But we can't definitively say that every crime that people do are similar must mean that they have the same common personality traits. This is just, it's a tool for police to use. It's a tool to maybe reduce a suspect pool. But a profiler would never say use this profile to include or exclude a person. We're not saying that at all. We're just saying from the research that's been done, these are the common traits that we have found with people who've done similar past crimes. Okay. So this, the information that I've used, it comes from past crimes and past non-offenders sure. and research that was done by the Behavioural Science Unit at Quantico. And, and I'm sure your listeners who have watched Mindhunter, uh, all you true crime fans, will be aware of the Behavioural Science Unit at Quantico. So mm. saying that, Graham, some of the characteristics I have feel that the killer would possess are may have prior criminal convictions. Sure. Well, you've seen the evidence and you've seen the psychiatric reports relating to Graham Stafford. Uh, Is his personality and record of behaviour before and after conviction compatible with someone who would commit this murder? No. Well, he has no prior criminal convictions. Sure. He was. Uh, he had no convictions before he was incarcerated. He was very well behaved while incarcerated, and he's had no convictions since. It just doesn't for doesn't follow the normal, you know, the normal route of a serious offender. Okay. Can you tell us the profile that you developed, worked up uh, of the offender? Want me to just go through the characteristic points? Yeah. yeah. So while we go through these. Why don't I tell you what I think the killer's characteristics are? And you can say, yeah or nay, whether they um, match Graham's. Okay. May okay. have prior criminal convictions. Uh, Graham Stafford does not have any criminal convictions, yeah? May show violent behaviour. There's no history or evidence of violent behaviour in the past. May have had mental issues in the past and received treatment. No evidence of that, and uh, he states he has not had that or treatment. He is a white male. We'll give him that. Correct. (laughs) Age 16 to late 30s at the time of the killing. Yes, he was. Below average intelligence and maybe a high school dropout. No, he wouldn't fit into that category. May come from a lower to middle class family. I think the Stafford family would be described as um, middle class. Yeah, I'd say middle class, yeah. Is the youngest or one of the youngest family members? Uh, The youngest. 
may have had a strict upbringing? No, from what I've seen and been told, uh, I, I wouldn't say he had a strict upbringing. Mm-hmm. Uh, does not own a vehicle? Oh, he's always owned vehicles. Oh, we know. He, yeah, he had the red Gemini, yeah. Never been in the military? No. Unemployed. Was unemployed. at the t- This is all at the time at the killing. Yeah. Was no, unemployed. No, he so was, we, no, that's not true. At the time of the murder, he was in stable long-term employment. Mm. Uh, socially inadequate? No, I wouldn't describe him as socially inadequate. An underachiever? No, he was a qualified mechanic and working in a qualified job at uh, at a manufacturing place at the time of his arrest. Yep. Poor self-image. No, I wouldn't say that describes him. Appearance and behaviour considered odd. No, definitely not. May have a thin stature. I don't know where they come up with that one, but... <laughs> Uh, he, he, stature. he has a small stature. I wouldn't say yeah. thin, but small. May have acne. No. Prior arrests. No. May have exhibited behaviours that included cruelty to animals, setting fires or bedwetting as a child. No. A loner. No, definitely not. Reject society. No. And believes society rejects him. No, that that doesn't describe Graham Stafford. Nocturnal. No. Lives near the crime scene. Yes. Uh, well, Graham. Uh, he doesn't tick. He doesn't tick many boxes there, Anne. He does not. No. Mm. The ones he ticks are a white male, sixteen to thirty, middle class family. Youngest of the, uh, the youngest family member may have a thin stature and lives near the crime scene, which is could be lots and lots and lots of men. Yes, that's right. In the next two chapters, uh, we discuss in detail the other suspects that have come to our attention in relation to this, and um, yeah. and we'll be comparing their profiles to this profile that you've worked up, and already I'm seeing some um, similarities. <laughs> Can I also add to that, Graham, that I I knew nothing, nothing about the uh, alternative suspects, which I specifically asked you not to tell or send me anything Mm. because I was uh, worried about confirmation bias, which means that subconsciously, if you know the characteristics of some of these alternate suspects, you can subconsciously make your profile out to fit some of their characteristics. So when I did this, I had no idea who any of them were, what their age, colour, race, creed. Uh, I knew nothing about them. But I have, since I've done this profile, I've seen them and it's very interesting. Very, very interesting. It is very interesting and and some of them uh, tick a lot more boxes than Graham Stafford does. Absolutely, and then mm. when we when we think of that with uh, different MOs, <laughs> yeah. that's even more interesting. It is that just blows me away that uh, that study from um, Northwest uh, University absolutely yeah. blows me away. Same here. All right, Anne. Well, thank you very much for your time today. And thank you so much for working up that profile for us. That gives us a real insight yeah. in, into profiling and, and how it all hangs together. My pleasure, Graham.
So, Jamie, as you know, we prepared a profile of Graham Stafford. Sure. We've now heard the profile of the killer as prepared by Anne. Do you want to read out the profile that we have of Graham Stafford? So, Graham Stafford was 27 years at the time of his arrest. So, he was single, he wasn't married, but he was in a relationship of 11 months with Melissa Holland, Leanne's sister. Prior to that, he was in two long-term relationships with women. Both those women support him today in his claim of innocence, in long-term stable employment, qualified as a motor mechanic. He had no evidence of physical violence to anyone, including women. He had no police record, no history of mental health issues. He denied involvement in the murder, maintains innocence 29 years later. He's got strong family ties and support. Strong family support continues to this day. He served 15 years imprisonment for the murder. Exemplary conduct in prison. Four prison officers gave him written references, completed courses whilst in prison and worked in various roles. He lived in the same house as the victim. No evidence of unusual conduct towards the victim or other women, girls. There was no evidence of assault on the victim. As they were very close in size, Leanne Holland was known to wear Graham Stafford's clothes from time to time. The transfers of fibres, DNA, etc. between Graham Stafford and Leanne Holland, which is to be expected because they shared the same house. Yep. So it's going to be very interesting to compare the profile of the killer to that of Graham Stafford and the other suspects we have in this case. So please stay tuned for future chapters. It gets quite intense from here on in. You've heard us mention a petition to the Attorney General to request a coronial inquiry into Leanne's murder. Well, we have started that petition, and if you would like to show your support and sign it, please head to our Facebook page. Just search Who Killed Leanne Holland. The link will also be in the show notes. So thanks for listening to Chapter 10 of Who Killed Leanne Holland. We'll see you again in two weeks. In the next chapter, we discuss two of the suspects identified as more likely being the killer of Leanne Holland and compare the profiles of the offender against these two men. A special thanks to our guests for this episode, Dr. Terry Goldsworthy and Anne McMahon. The interviews for this chapter were conducted by Graham Crowley. Who Killed Leanne Holland is a 610 Media production. This episode was written and fact-checked by Graham Crowley. It was recorded, edited, and theme song by Jamie Poltz. It was mixed and mastered by Alex Rotier at Paperbark Studios. The music for this episode was entirely produced by Bubba Beats, and you can find him on SoundCloud or Instagram or Spotify. Just look for at Bubba Beats. If you like any of the sounds that you hear and you are a podcaster looking to make a true crime podcast, then you can purchase his sounds. All the links will be in the show notes. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Who Killed Leanne Holland and also at 610 Media Group. Also head to our websites and you can read our blogs and see pictures at whokilledleanholland.com and 610mediagroup.com. And please, if you're enjoying the show, share us with your friends and don't forget to rate and review us. It does help. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.